Well, this will come as a shock to you, but I discovered in the first service that I have too much material. So buckle up. We begin by asking you a question. What is the conscience? It has been defined as the ability of the mind to distinguish right from wrong. Do right and your conscience affirms you. Do wrong and your guilty conscience condemns you. What is the conscience? One suggested it's what causes the little boy to tell his mother, you know, before his sister does. Uh, another said, conscience doesn't keep you from singing, uh, sinning, it just keeps you from enjoying it. Oh, or perhaps you've heard the story of, of a money order uh, with an anonymous note that was sent to the IRS. The note read, I couldn't sleep because I owed you this money. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. <laughs> conscience is that innate sense of right and wrong written on the heart of every person. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 2. For when Gentiles, that's unbelievers, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, uh, these are a law to themselves, for they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, thoughts either uh, defending or accusing them. The conscience accuses us when we're wrong. We just know we're wrong. And it, and it defends us when we're right. It's why we hear things like, follow your conscience. It's not an infallible guide, but follow your conscience. Don't violate your conscience. Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 16th century, had been, had been brought before the Catholic authorities at the Diet of Worms in 1521. It was a rather intimidating scene. Um, John Eck, the, uh, the prosecutor, and, the, and cardinals, and bishops, and, and even Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. They had spread out a, a, on a table copies of Luther's writings. <laughs> you see, in those works, he had been somewhat critical of the Catholic Church. They asked him two simple questions. First, are these your writings? He responded, they are. Second question, do you recant what you have written? He actually said, give me 24 hours to think about that. Came back the next day, asked him, do you recant? To which he responded, unless I am convinced by proofs from Scripture or by plain and clear reason and arguments, I cannot and will not retract, for it is neither safe nor wise to do anything against conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other God help me. Don't violate your conscience. Uh, others talk about having a clear conscience. Of course, it was Mark Twain who said, a clear conscience is usually the sign of a bad memory. <laughs> conscience can be a wonderful thing. It is to the thinking, feeling, moral part of me that, that, that pain is to the physical part of me. I don't put my hand in the fire, well, the second time, because it hurts. If I didn't feel the pain, then, then I would not know I was destroying my hand in the fire. In fact, as I understand it, this is the problem with leprosy. The nerve endings are, are, are deadened. You feel no physical pain, and the body extremities are then destroyed. 
Well, the same is true in the non-physical part of me. The conscience acts to the moral, spiritual part that pain does to the physical. When you do wrong, there are pangs of guilt to inform you. You're wrong. You take your hand out of the, well, maybe out of the cookie jar, and hopefully you repent and change your actions. However, it is possible to have leprosy of the soul. That is to ignore the conscience and become morally disfigured. We can even put it to death and be dead to the pangs of conscience. And so there are times that God uses events to awaken a sleeping or even a dead conscience. This is what I believe is happening in the lives of Joseph's 11 brothers, or at least 10 of them, in Genesis 42 to 44. In fact, I've titled this section, those three chapters, The the Awakening of Conscience. It is an amazing part uh, of this story. We've been in a study of the, of the life of Joseph. You'll remember Joseph was the favored son of his father, Jacob. Bit of a problem, a father favoring one son over the others. As a result, Joseph was hated by his brothers. They plotted against him, planned to kill him, ended up selling him into slavery in Egypt. For the next 13 years, Joseph was a slave, then falsely accused, imprisoned, forgotten. Well, not by everybody. Good news. Last week, after interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, remember fat and skinny cows, ugly cows, um, after interpreting those dreams, he was elevated to the second highest office in all Egypt. He was made prime minister, given a new name, given a new wife who bore him two sons. And according to those dreams, things went really, really well for, for seven years. During that time, Joseph collected grain into storehouses throughout Egypt in preparation for the seven years of famine to come. And as we get to chapter 42 today, that famine has fully arrived. It was a severe famine. Remember, these were the ugliest cows Pharaoh had ever seen. The effect of of the famine could be felt all over the then known world to include Canaan. So we're going to find today that Jacob hears about grain in Egypt and sends his 10 oldest sons to to bring to go buy some food. And they're going to come face to face with with Joseph. This is this is great. It's, everything's happened according to plan. In fact, God's purposes are complete. Joseph can just Reveal himself, family can move to Egypt just like God wanted, right? I mean, live happily ever after, right? Not quite. You see, there was this little business of ten sleeping consciences that must be awakened. This story is a masterpiece of God fulfilling His purposes. In the life of Joseph, yes, in the lives of his brothers, and in the life of Jacob. And all the while fulfilling his grand design to get the family down to Egypt, to make a great nation of them so he can fulfill his purpose to you. This is, this is our story. 
Well, it's, it's God's story. Please don't miss. Please don't miss that God used a worldwide famine, somewhat inconvenient, I would say, to accomplish his good purposes. Because while not all things are good, all things are for the good of God's people. And we begin to see God working in the lives of the rest of the family. (laughs) Let's face it, needed some work. Now, no doubt the seven years of plenty had a positive effect in Canaan, just as the seven years of famine were about to have a negative effect. But in Canaan, they had no way of knowing what was going on. They, They had no way of knowing that they should prepare for the seven years of famine to come. They had most assuredly become quite content, don't you think? I mean, these 10 brothers and their families. 20 years had passed since their dastardly deed. I mean, things had been going great. God had been smiling upon them, and their consciences were fast asleep. And now it was time for God to wake them up. And that's what chapters 42 to 44 are all about. God uses the events of these chapters to bring about remorse and and repentance in these ten brothers. He's working in their lives too. We'll see God working in the life of Jacob, and we'll see him especially working in the life of of Judah. It It is masterpiece theater at its best. And I think we're going to learn two very, very important lessons. First, God was about to fulfill his promise to the covenant family to take them down to Egypt, but not at any cost. He didn't just want them there. He wanted them there with right hearts, with awakened and and clear consciences. You see, God's purposes are achieved in righteousness. If you ever stop to think about it, that's, that's why he left us here after we were saved. You know, you come to faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know if you noticed, you didn't have your own personal rapture, get immediately transported to heaven. He, he leaves us here, in some cases, for years to mature us, to perfect us. We, too, are on a journey. We're going somewhere according to his grand plan. And God is working in our lives to prepare us for what lies ahead, the glories of heaven. Secondly, I want you to understand that, and this is kind of tough, that time does not blot out sin. The sin that these brothers had committed against Joseph was over 20 years old. And God was about to deal with it. For us, we should not think that just because sin goes unpunished or undetected for a period of time, that it will remain so. (laughs) You see, the law of the harvest is true. What a man sows, that he reaps. And for the brothers, they had sown 20 years ago, and now they're getting ready to reap in a big way. Now, Now, don't take that for more than is intended. Yes, grace is here to forgive us, to cleanse us, to purify us. Mercy is here to relieve us from the consequences of sin. But we, we see here that hidden sin may be exposed and, and dealt with 
in, in dead consciences. We must not think that unconfessed secret sin, you know, nobody knows, no matter how old, may not have consequences. It is always best to follow, yes, sometimes fallible, but it's always best to follow conscience. Don't put it to sleep to confess and repent. This is what God is about to do in the lives of the brothers. Now, another question that we must deal with as we jump into this story is, was Joseph right in the way that he acted toward his brothers in these chapters? If you're not familiar with the story, that's okay. We're going to go into it. Um, I want you to keep the question in mind. That is, was this deception that he perpetrated on his brothers justified? Be careful how you answer. Or does God choose to use the deception to bring about repentance in the lives of the brothers? Much like God used the wrongs perpetrated against Joseph, does he now use the wrongs perpetrated against the brothers to bring about his grand and glorious purposes? Just keep that in mind. We get to chapter 42. Let me give you the outline of the chapter. Very, very simple outline just so that we can kind of break it up. We're going to see the brothers' um, journey to Egypt. We're going to see them come face to face with uh, Joseph and then the return to Canaan. Now, I want you to remember that all along we see God at work awakening conscience. It is an amazing story. With all that in mind, all that as a backdrop, verses 1 to 5 where we see the brothers' journey. Look at it. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? He said, behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Then, my version says 10. Then 10 brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers. For he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming. For the famine was also, uh, was in the land of Canaan also. It's obvious that uh, Canaan had been hit hard with this famine. The, the, the brothers appear to be at a point of despondency. Jacob says to them, don't just sit around staring at each other. Get up, go get us some food so that we may live and not die. This is a, don't miss it, this is a severe famine, a significant hardship for the family for whom God was working. Wait, wait, I thought God wanted us to be fat and happy. Well, you figure it out. And all things may not be good, but all things are for our good. Notice also verses 3 and 4. Only 10 brothers go because Jacob doesn't let Benjamin go for fear that some harm will befall him. I don't really care about the 10. But, but, but Benjamin, the only son of Rachel left? No way. What does this communicate to the brothers? 
You see, Jacob's favoritism for Rachel and to Joseph had been now transferred to Benjamin. He never seems to figure this out. Rachel and Joseph are now gone. Benjamin's all that's left. Jacob won't even let him out of his sight. And you've got to understand, this last favoritism is quite severe. Later, uh, we'll see that while Simeon, who is also a son of Jacob, is in prison, they don't go back to get, uh, to get him until they run out of food. Dad is willing to let Simeon rot in prison before he sends Benjamin to Egypt. This is critically important. You see, Jacob is still showing favoritism to a son of Rachel. They got rid of Joseph when he did that before. The stage is being set. How will the brothers respond to the new favorite? Have they changed? It brings us to our second point. The brothers meet Joseph, verses 6 to 25. It's kind of a long section, very interesting though. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. That's kind of funny. Now when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. That's kind of funny. Your servants are not spies. He said to them, no, you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, your servants are 12 brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. And Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may go get your brother, which you, uh, while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. For if not by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. That had to taste really good. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother." Because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben, being the oldest, as the oldest always does, blames it on everyone else. Did I not tell you? Do not commit or do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. And they did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was 
an interpreter between them. And he turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound them before their eyes. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money, his silver, in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. So they make their way to Egypt. Now, remember the plan that that Joseph had had come up with. The, The grain had to be gathered in strategic cities and storehouses all over Egypt. Of necessity, there were many places the grain was sold. For the brothers to have come right to the place where Joseph personally sold grain was really, really lucky. It was God, again, working out his plan to the very smallest detail because God is in the details. Notice that when the brothers appeared before Joseph, they didn't recognize him. Why? Well, I can think of several reasons. First, it's been about 20 years since they had last seen him. He was uh, 17 then. He was 37 now. Anyone look like they did 20 years ago? You might think you look as good as when you were 17. When you're 37, you don't. Second, they would have been looking for a slave if they were looking for their brother at all, not the prime minister. Third, he appeared as an Egyptian, not as a Hebrew. Remember, he was clean-shaven. He wore the linen robes of Pharaoh's courts. He was no doubt bedecked in in Egyptian noble splendor, and he stood there like this. (laughs) Hebrews don't stand like that. Fourth, we'll see in verse 23 that he spoke through an interpreter. There was nothing at all to give him away. The brothers, on the other hand, yeah, they were 20 years older. That's true. Little pudgier, uh, same dress. Hebrew brothers, same mannerisms, little older, little grayer, no mistaking them. Now, as they appear before Joseph, what is the first thing they do? They bowed with their faces to the ground. In fact, I just got to say, this is the first of many times they will do so for the rest of their lives. I'm thinking if I'm in the palace, I don't care how many times the the brothers come to see me, I'm going to make them bow. Does this sound familiar? You see, Joseph never seemed to lose sight of the dreams. For 20 years, he never seemed to lose faith in God fulfilling the dreams of chapter 37. 20 years. Verse 9 of this chapter tells us that Joseph remembered the dreams. There they are on their faces. Ten of them. And he remembers the dreams. Do you suppose that, do you suppose that might be true for us? The 20 years or, or 200 years or, or maybe 2,000 years, we'll be remembering the promises that God made to us. 
there is a bit of a problem. There are only 10 brothers bowing. The second dream said all 11 brothers plus mom and dad would bow. So Joseph begins questioning them with some rather insightful questions. And now at this point, uh, the commentators begin to diverge. Uh, did Joseph suddenly, on the spur of the moment, much like when he was talking to Pharaoh, come up with a plan to bring about his brother's repentance? Or did God, through Joseph's mistreatment of his brothers, use the mistreatment to bring about his brother's repentance? Now, I'll let you decide. The, the, the point is, actually, I'll comment on it later. We, we do see God working out his purposes. God is the one pulling the strings. You see, it is at this point that we begin, just begin to see a little change starting to take place in the lives of the brothers, in their sleeping consciences. Now, notice when Joseph asked about their family at home, they spoke of their father and their, and their youngest brother who was still alive, and verse 13, and one is no longer alive. Literally, in the Hebrew, it is one is not. He's, he's no more. Kind of a cold-hearted way to speak of Joseph. Joseph, no admission of guilt there. It's just like, yeah, there were 12 of us, and one, well, poof, he's gone. These history, don't know what happened. All that will change by the time we get to verse 21 after three days in prison. We find there a bit of a, more of awakening. They begin to recognize that possibly, just maybe, they were being punished for their sins of 20 years ago. Notice they go from the one who is not to the brother who was distressed. And they begin to figure out that this was all possibly coming upon them because of their sin against Joseph. Now I have a question. If they thought that they were possibly being punished, why this particular sin? It had been over 20 years. Had they not sinned since then? Read about their lives. I'm quite sure they had sinned a lot. What brought this particular sin to mind? You see, I believe God is at work in their hearts to soften them and to awaken some dead consciences. He is the one who brought this particular sin to their minds. Their attitudes begin to change. It's only a little change. It's not quite enough, but it's a start. We're going to see more change in our next point. But before we get there, let me go back to that question. Was Joseph right in the way that he dealt with his brothers here? Verses 9, 12, 14, 16. You are spies, were they? Were, were they? Did he know who they were? Was he not being a bit deceptive? He made them think he thought they were spies when he knew they weren't. And then let me put it to you this way. If you were called to be a witness in a trial of someone you knew, you knew they were innocent. If you testified they were guilty, would that be right? 
In this particular case, not only was Joseph witness, he was judge and jury as well. He puts them in prison for three days, keeps Simeon for who knows how long, all on this pretense that they were spies when he knew they weren't. It's kind of funny. Of course, the brothers can say, we're not spies. We're all sons of one men. We are honest men. Everybody's lying here. I've always had a bit of a problem with this part of the story. I, I personally think that Joseph spoke harshly and deceived them, maybe out of maybe just a little vindictive, bitter revenge. Yes, God uses it to bring about repentance on the parts of the brothers, but I, I think it may be pushing it a bit to say that Joseph had this all figured out from the beginning. You see, if we say he was right to do this, then we have to say that deception is okay to accomplish a greater good. We were saying it is good to do wrong that good may result. It is good to lie so that good may result. I don't think so. Regardless, God does use Joseph's behavior to bring about his purposes, much like he did with the brother's actions toward Joseph. And we remember that one of the main themes of this story is that God can and does overrule, overrule evil to bring about his purposes. He never causes evil, but he overrules it to bring about his purposes. So maybe Joseph begins to exact some revenge here, puts them in prison for three days. Again, had to taste a little bit good, a little taste of what he had experienced as a slave and a prisoner for 13 days. I can see him up in the palace, kicking back on one of those couches, palm fronds, peeled grapes. This had to be fun. He says, you're all going to rot in prison until one of you goes and gets your brother, so the one that's still in Canaan, who he wants to see. Uh, until he, he gets back, and then I can know that you're telling the truth. Can you imagine the bickering that went on in the prison among the 12 brothers? After three days, though, Joseph calls them to stand before him, and he says, do this and live, for I fear God. They had no idea that the God he feared was the God they feared. But Joseph is beginning to introduce God into the story and turn their hearts toward him. If you are honest men, I'll just keep one of you. Take provisions back to your family. Joseph knew that they were suffering. I'm just going to keep one of you. Come back with your brother. You'll all live. Verse 21, again. They say to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, we would, yet we would not listen. Therefore this distress has come upon us. Notice the awakening of conscience. They, they, they went from this one who is not to our brother who is in distress, who was in distress. And they feel guilty. But feeling guilty is not enough. 
Their guilt must now bring about repentance, a change in heart, and a change in actions, which is what the rest of the story is about. We remember the words of Paul to the Corinthians, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. Godly sorrow brings repentance, a change. Worldly sorrow, you just feel bad about it. That's where the brothers were. Just feel really awful about Joseph. It's at this point that that Reuben starts pointing the finger. I told you so. You wouldn't listen. End of verse 22. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. We are starting to reap what we sowed. That awakening of conscience is happening a little bit more. Joseph can hear them. He'd been speaking to them through an interpreter. They didn't know that he could understand. He hears them. When he hears them recounting what they had done to him, he turns away and weeps, which begs the question, why not, why turn away and weep? Why not just say, hey, it's me, Joseph? Because feeling sorry about sin is not repentance. The conscience is just beginning to awaken. They've got a long way to go. So he wipes his eyes, turns back to them, and binds Joseph before their eyes. One of the brothers is bound before them. This should look familiar. It looks an awful lot like what they had done to Joseph. Hey, we got a brother bound in Egypt. Does it matter? Would they act differently now? Would they care? Would they leave him there? Was there a change? Was there repentance? Notice also, Joseph has their sacks filled with grain and gives instructions for their silver to be returned to the mouths of the sack. This is also critically important. They got their money back, which takes us to point three. The brothers returned to Canaan. Very quickly, look at verse 26. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, my money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. And sometimes Hebrew writers are very repetitive. And their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us. When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us. He took us for spies. But we told him, We are honest men. We're not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father, and one is no longer alive. The youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. The man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. (laughs) Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will give your brother to you and you may trade in the land. You see, it's possible he wants to know that Benjamin's still alive, that they didn't do to him what they had done to him. Now it came about as they were emptying their sacks that, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundle of money, they were dismayed. That's different. Their father, Jacob, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And 
you would take Benjamin, all these things are against me. Then Reuben has a bright idea saying, hey, you can put your grandsons to death if I don't bring um, him back to you. Put him in my care and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he, is alone, he alone is left. <laughs> He's talking to ten brothers or nine. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. So they load their donkeys, start making their multi-trek day back home. They stop for the night. One unnamed brother's open, a brother opens his sack to feed the donkey, finds money, tells his brothers, my money's in my sack. We read their hearts sink. Don't miss verse 28. They turn trembling to one another. What is this that God has done to us? There is a recognition that this might be divine retribution. They are moving from guilt to understanding that God is holding them accountable. This is the first time in the story of Joseph that the brothers ever mentioned God. The awakening of conscience. And don't miss this part. When Joseph was taken bound to Egypt, the brothers got silver. Now Simeon is bound in Egypt and the brothers got silver. What would they do now 20 years later? What did they do 20 years earlier? They threw a party. What, what would they do now? And their hearts were dismayed. As we close this morning, I want you also to learn something about Jacob in this part of the story. What I want you to understand is that this guy is a bit of a pessimist. Verse 36 seems to be the theme verse of Jacob's life. All these things are against me. We actually saw this attitude back in chapter 37 when he lost Joseph, refused to be comforted. He said, I'll go down to the grave in mourning for my son. And from that point on, he seemed to have a bleak under, uh, outlook on everything. At the end of this chapter, he says, if any harm comes to him on the journey you're taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. Oh, I thought you already were. The, end, the next chapter, chapter 43, he finally agrees to let Benjamin go. In verse 14, he says, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Woe is me. In chapter 45, when the brothers come back to tell Jacob that Joseph is alive, he says, I will go and see him before I die. And then in chapter 46, when he sees Joseph for the first time, he says, now I am ready to die and lives for 17 more years. This guy's a pessimist. What a contrast there is between the faith of Jacob and the faith of Joseph. No matter how difficult the circumstances became, Joseph always seemed to recognize that God was in control, bringing about his plan. He never lost hope in the promises of God. Jacob, hmm, evidence is little trust in God. In this latter part of his life, he always assumes the worst. Notice what he said. All things are against me. Was that true? 
Nothing could be further from the truth. Joseph and Simeon were alive and well in chapter 42. Nothing is going to happen to Benjamin in the next couple of chapters. Far from everything being against Jacob, everything was for Jacob. So here we are. I'm done. Here's my question. In times of trial, are you a Joseph or are you a Jacob? Do you think the worst or the best? Do you think everyone, including God, is against you? All things are against me. It'd be best if I just go out and eat worms and die. Or do you know? Like Joseph, no matter how long it takes, that the sovereign God is bringing about his purposes and he will fulfill his promises to you. It's been 2,000 years. Who cares? Let's stand for prayer. Father, my prayer for us as we go through this story is that we would learn that you are God. You're in control and you are good. And that everything that happens for your children is for our good. May be lousy. It may be a problem. It may be a famine. It may be hatred. It may be being sold into slavery. It may be being persecuted. It's for our good. All things are not against us. All things are for us. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.